Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mike Perry, and I'm here with the man, the myth, Brett Jones. Brett, how are you today, good sir? I'm sure glad you didn't. I'm good. I'm I'm glad you didn't finish that statement because I am no legend outside of my own mind. No, I know that. That's why I didn't finish it. You're, abs- <laughs> you're, you're absolutely not a legend. I don't even know where you get that, <laughs> that from, Mr. Patting yourself on the shoulder over there. Um, no, I'm just kidding. You actually, hey, out of out of the people the I know, all of the people I know, you are like the most humble dude that's like, yeah, I know. I know a couple of things about kettlebells. That's you. Uh, you don't sound do like stuff. that. You do stuff. I know things. <laughs> I, hey, that one of my one of my favorite memes from uh, Game of Thrones and and uh, the whole series. That's what I do. I drink and I know things. And I yeah, like, I hate. Oh, McGird. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's not a bad skill set. I always tell people I'm good at two things: cutting grass and training. That's all I got. So, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Um, anyways, we're going to be talking about, uh, practice and, and we're going to be discussing, um, sort of three different components of practice. And, and why is this important? Well, if you are learning a new skill, whether it's a barbell, a kettlebell, body weight, or you are acquiring a skill, uh, within a specific sport like soccer, basketball, lacrosse, field hockey, you name it. Um, understanding the process in which we learn is super important because, you know, the main goal is to always have some sort of carryover with what you're doing, right? So if you're strength training, you want the things that you're learning about strength training is in the, in the implements that you're looking to use. You want to make sure that whatever skill you're acquiring is going to have carryover, right? You're going to be able to use those same skills uh, regardless. So uh, a big part of that is the principles of strength training, right? Um, progressive overload, tension, relaxation, all that other stuff. But we need to use those principles to help us with specific exercises and modalities. And on the sort of sports side, when we're talking about, you know, again, the sports like basketball, soccer, lacrosse, football, um, there's other components because there's this sort of game IQ component, right? Where you're competing against uh, the other team. Um, there's multiple people on the field. Uh, there's just more going on. So you have to be just a little bit more. When I say intelligent, I don't think that's the best word, but you have to be a little bit more aware, more aware of your surroundings when it comes to uh, playing a game, because it's not just you and the weight, it's you and, and a whole bunch of other people. But um, I, I do think it's important to discuss the differences because I think a lot of people practice the wrong way and they think they're doing it the right way. And they're even working really hard at it. And that's a really tough pill to swallow where you're trying to do something, you're working really hard at it. You're trying and you're putting all these hours and you're not getting the response or the adaptation that you're looking for. So the question is, is it the effort or is it the way that you're approaching the skill that you're trying to acquire? And and that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. And uh, before we dive in to this uh, sort of topic, Brett, anything you'd like to add before we get into the sort of the three different pieces? Um, a really good book. 
to go back and, and review is uh, make it stick, not made to stick. Made to stick is about marketing. <clears throat> make it stick is about learning. And um, I read this and, and uh, really impactful to how I approach a, a variety of things now. And um, before we start talking about block zero and random and, and, and we get into some of these concepts, I do want to throw a couple things into the mix. Um, and first and foremost, it's okay to struggle. Uh, I think sometimes as coaches, we want to remove the struggle. We want to somehow uh, get somebody from zero to hero uh, without having the, the, the struggle in between. And um, struggle is how we learn. So even to the point of when you look at, and this is more academic, but when you look at learning research, the uh, when, when you use something like quizzes, your accuracy in taking the quiz is not necessarily predictive of how you're going to do on the test. But what happens in the process of getting quizzed and struggling to recall the information is you're recalling the information. And so the, there's a, a process to go through. And part of that process is struggle. Like we, we need to be okay with the fact that as long as we've set up the guardrails correctly, and as long as we've taken care of safety, uh, which is always that that's a given. Like if if we're having this conversation, we're we're uh, we're safety's taken care of. We're going to stop somebody if they do something that they they don't need to be doing. Um, but that um, uh, that that concept of of uh, putting the guardrails up and letting somebody struggle, let them ping around. Pardon me, in the safe little box that you've created for them, and let them struggle. Uh, there's 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 a lot to be learned by just going through the process. And uh, one of the th other things they talk about, um, and this will be perhaps a good segue into our conversation on the, the three, um, they talk about a study with, uh, and, and I these were like eight-year-olds. Um, I, I don't know if they were kids. And what they had to do is they had to, the, the, the goal activity was to throw a beanbag into a bucket three feet away. So they set up two groups. One group practiced throwing the beanbag to the bucket that was three feet away. The other group practiced throwing to a bucket that was two feet and four feet away, never practicing the goal distance. And the group in the end that did best was that group. The group that never practiced the goal distance actually outperformed the group that only practiced the goal distance. And what it what it taps into is this this concept of some variability in what we're doing. And I remember Pavel years ago talking about Russian shot putters that would throw to precise distances. And and I'm I'm making numbers up here because I, I don't know what shot putting distances are. Uh so, you know they would throw 10 feet, 15 feet, 13 feet, 17 feet. Like they would vary the distances and try to hit these targets. Whereas I think I, you know, if I was gonna step up and try to shot put, I'd just be trying to throw it as far as I could. <laughs> yeah. So, and so this, this idea that having this variability uh, within the practice um, is a good thing and it actually uh, helps in a lot of different areas. So uh, struggle is good. Uh, variety is good. And, you know, when we talk about something as simple um, as the swing, like I tell people all the time, if you only have one swing, 
you got a problem. Like you should be able to surf this continuum between an RDL to a squatty style with the athletic hinge being the the primary goal. Um, and you should be able to hit different intent intensities. You should be able to swing at a 10 maximum effort. You should be able to swing at a one kind of tried, you know, you should be able to dial in to a variety. And so, and you should be able to swing to different levels. If, if you just, if the bell's swinging you, your, your only goal is to get it as high as you can. You're missing out on some real skill uh, development. So uh, I think the the concept of struggle and the concept of this, uh, the variability um, in the practice is a good starting point. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think another thing to consider is um, when people think about skill acquisition and learning something new, they they a lot of the times assume it's going to take a long time. And 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 the beauty of it, beauty of it, if you've been coaching. And even if you're working with young, young kids, if you've been coaching for a long, long time, you can see learning happen within 10 minutes. I mean, it, it happens because of the response to the environment and to what's going on. And look, unless you immerse yourself in that environment and do it, actually physically do it, like you can't watch basketball and learn how to play basketball. You have to play basketball. And it's the same thing with anything physical, right? Sure. Can you watch someone and get some ideas? Yes. But at a certain point, you have to just do it. And that is not a Nike reference on purpose. But one of the things that uh, I think people don't understand is anytime we try something new and kids do this really well because they try stuff all the time and fall and they get back up and keep going. I wish adults could learn something from that. But um, I want to kind of talk about two quick little stories and uh, and then we'll kind of dig into the science. Um, I was working with a group of young athletes at the gym, and this is through the, the town lacrosse program. And we're just doing some LTAD stuff. And, uh, you know, we have them running forward and then we have them backpedaling. And I always joked with them. These were one and twos, right? Yeah. First and second grade. And I'm like, all right, who's going to fall on their butts first. And inevitably they're, they're running forward and they run backwards and then boom, they fall on their butt and they get up and, you know, it, they didn't feel embarrassed because I kind of called it out. I go, look guys, I fall all the time when I do this, um, this happens. So of course, you know, the kids are doing it and they run, go backwards. Like, you know, uh, uh, almost all of them fell. And then we did some other drills. We came back to it and we did it again and and maybe one or two less fell. And then we kept on, we kept on doing it. And by the end, no one fell. Now I wasn't saying to them, don't fall. Like, I mean, that would have been the obvious, right? Like don't fall. But <laughs> what, what does that mean to them? Of course, they're not trying to fall, but what, what are they doing? When they fell, they, re they learned, they received input right from the ground based off of their position, based off of how they fell. And they said, whoa, okay, I got to, well, they weren't thinking this per, uh, per se. This was more subconscious, but they're thinking to themselves or they're not thinking to themselves. They're just, their body's going, well, how can I change the way I'm moving to not fall again? That's literally what's happening. So, you know, they changed their footwork. Maybe they changed their shape a little bit. And by the end, all the kids were able to do a backpedal. That is learning right in front of your eyes. And it's pretty cool to watch when you can see these young kids just trying to figure it out and they fall on their butts and they fall on their butts and by the end they can do it. Like they just learned. They just learned a ton. They learned more through trial and error than I could have ever done by saying, chest up, swing your arms. Like I was just like, guys, jog down and run backwards. And I had them do that several times. I created an environment where they were exposed to something and they did it several times and they learned. I didn't have to teach them the the environment and the experience taught them. And it's a beautiful thing. So that's learning in a nutshell, right? Here's another example. When you teach a kid to ride a bike, right? What do we do? 
we generally put them, put some training wheels on their bike. And what's the goal of training wheels? Well, when you, when you put a kid on a bike and they use training wheels, we raise those wheels, um, up not too far off the ground. Why? Because they don't understand that when they weight shift left, they're probably going to fall left. And when they weight shift, right, they're going to fall right. So, you know, the training wheels prevents us from falling and it gives us feedback. But the problem is, is if, if they don't feel the weight shift enough with the training wheels, they're not going to, they're not going to weight shift in the opposite way. So at a certain point, right, you just got to take the, you got to take the training wheels off and then put them on the grass. Trust me on this one and put them on the grass. And what do they do? They weight shift, right. And they fall. So they get back up. Guess what they do? They drive and they, they knew that they fell right. So what did they do? The second they felt themselves weight shift, right. They overcorrected left and fell. And then this sort of dance happens back and forth until eventually they learn how to ride a bike. You can't say, Hey, uh, next time weight shift a little less left or weight shift a little less. It doesn't happen that way. It's, it's purely environmental. And that's the beauty of learning. So I guess my point is, is when you're working with younger athletes and when you're working with kids, oftentimes the environment and how you set things up will be the ultimate teacher. And some of the times that sometimes the best thing we can do is just zip it up because, uh, um, I think sometimes coaches over talk and over coach, you know, especially when it comes to young, young kids. So, but those are two perfect examples of learning and, and it happens relatively quickly. So it's not that you cannot acquire certain skills rather quickly. It just depends on the skill. Well, and that is struggle in action mm -hmm. and setting up, uh, uh, um, well, the, the mantra we use within FMS is a proprioceptively rich environment at the edge of your abilities, but not beyond where you are successful, but challenged and, and zip it. You're absolutely right. We overcoach. We, we try to talk somebody through. And one of Gray's quotes that I, I love so much is the language of movement is not language. It's feel. I have to put you in a position where you can learn. And I need to shut up and let you learn. Um, so yeah, key, key concepts. And, you know, one of the things that happened here a few years ago, and, and, and the reason we wanted to, to chat about this is the concept of motor learning made its way into the strength training world. And people started saying that they were taking a motor learning approach and, 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 uh, and, you know, something new, something shiny, uh, something that you can, um, that appears complicated uh, that you can then bring to the table and say, you're using this new shiny thing uh, is always going to get people, you know, involved in, in doing it. Um, we're, so before we go full bore into motor learning, um, one of the concepts that comes out of there is this idea of block serial and random practice. And if we just put quick definitions on those uh, block practice, practice the same thing over and over. And this is how most of us learned, right? You want to learn a speech, read it, read it, write it, read it, read it, write it, read it, write it, and just keep doing it until you memorize it, right? Um, then there's serial practice. And serial practice is when you set up a series of, of exercises or movements. Uh, let's say we were doing single leg bridge, um, a single leg deadlift, and a kettlebell swing because we wanted better, you know, better activation in the, in the kettlebell swing. So serial practice would have us going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, practicing those drills in a series 
um, and over and over. And then random practice. Random practice, it's one, two, three, two, three, one, three, one, two, 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 one, three, three, one, two. Uh, it's random, right? The, the name says it all. Um, and those ideas for how to practice and structure something that you're trying to learn or improve at are solid. Like those are definitely concepts that we can pull in. And I think, you know, most people would recognize block practice as traditional strength training. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to do my five sets of squats. I'm going to do my 10 sets of presses, whatever the case may be. Um, some people will recognize serial practice. Um, you know, your argument could be made. Iron cardio is a form of serial practice. Clean, press, squat, clean, press, squat, clean, press, squat. Um, random practice, a little more sport application. Last thing to say on this before I, I turn it over to Mike is block practice makes you feel better in the session. So let's say your goal, you're even whatever you're practicing and you spend an hour hammering away at it. Practice, 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 practice. Same thing, same thing, same thing. By the end of the practice, you're probably sitting there going, yeah, yeah, got a little, little bit better. Yeah, that was that was effective practice. But there's less transfer to the next practice. Serial random practice doesn't feel as good in the session. And and the other thing to talk about here is interleaving the practice. And this is this is something that that plays with the concepts that we're talking about, but interleaving the practice means. I'm going to practice some get-ups. I'm going to go do some swings. I'm going to go do some squats. I'm going to come back to some get-ups. And so I'm just kind of interleaving my practice. Do a little practice, go do something else. Do a little practice, go do something else. When you interleave the practice, which could be looked at as a form of random uh, practice, um, when you interleave the practice, it doesn't feel as good in session, but you have better transfer to the next session. So... The, when, we, when we look at those, and, and that's where embracing struggle and telling somebody, hey, we're going to interleave this practice, and you're going to leave today thinking, I don't know what I accomplished. But when you come back tomorrow, you're going to know what you accomplished because you're going to have some better, better transfer into the when we revisit this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I also think this is where people get things wrong, and they think they're doing the right things. Um, and maybe they're they're doing some of it right, but oftentimes it's not optimal, right? And and if we're going to spend an hour doing something, why wouldn't we want to be optimal with that hour? So um, understanding how we learn in the process and in, in which you can really make jumps in skill um, and and also just more more efficiency in general, because uh, efficiency can be tough to measure, um, you know. When you're lifting weights, it's pretty easy to see that if you're lifting more, you've you know you've gotten a little bit stronger. I mean, there's obviously multiple factors, but there's the efficiency the, the efficiency piece uh, as well. But when it comes to to block practice, um, if your goal is to learn a new skill, um, you're going to break down the basics of that skill, and and it's going to be taught. You know, depending on the individual who's teaching and the instructor, if they're a really good instructor, they'll probably teach it with very very simple things, and then they'll just layer it on top. But, um, you know, if you're going to be teaching someone, um, how to do a kettlebell swing, you know, the first thing is, can they hinge, right? That's going to be the first thing. And then you start to, you know, hinge and we talk about the plank and we talk about the deadlift and then eventually you'll get there. So if your goal is to learn how to do one thing really, really well, block practices, uh, 
is is awesome because you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And like Brett said, you can see the results rather quickly. You're like, wow, man, I, you know, I was getting five, five in a row and now I'm getting eight or now I'm getting nine. And you can see uh, the improvements rather quickly. And that's great. Cause you're like, wow, I'm getting better. Yes, you are getting better, but what are you getting better at? And is it going to have a transferability into the sport that you're trying to, to learn? Now, look, if you're swinging a kettlebell and your goal is to swing a kettlebell, cool, you can swing the kettlebell. You don't need carryover to anything else. I mean, will it help with your overall athleticism? Heck yeah. But there isn't the carryover to the sport um, per se. But whereas if you are learning a new sport, um, you want to have carryover to the game. So I'll use an example of, uh, you know, lacrosse and, and, and both of my boys are in lacrosse and I'm a big fan of the sport. Um, and what is one of the first things every coach says, use your rebounder. Are you using your rebounder? Are you passing and catching? And yes, that's awesome. It's a great way to learn a skill. Okay. But the problem is, is at a certain point, you need to not be a rebounder hero. You need to be able to go out on the field and pass and catch with different shapes and with different foot positions and with, you know, different hand positions and with people on you. And that is where the rubber meets the road. So um, if you're wondering why all of your rebounder work hasn't transferred into you playing better in the game is because you haven't done anything that's going to actually warrant the carryover. Think of it this way in basketball. If all you did was practice foul shots You'd get really good at foul shots. It doesn't mean you're going to get really good at basketball. It just means you're going to get good at foul shots. So that is where we have really no transferability. Yes, there's a little bit, but you know we have to eventually put it in a scenario that's going to mimic what happens in the game. And that's why so many people, they practice, 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 and they get better at that one thing, but then they get frustrated because the transferability is not there. And that is one, that's what I mean by saying, well, you can actually practice the wrong way. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I, I absolutely saw working, you know, in this last year with a bunch of lacrosse players is, you know, some of these kids, they can, you know, right hand in a static position and they can, they can do, you know, 50, 60, 80 reps with a rebound in a row. You ask them to, to move laterally or forward and back and do that rebounder. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't do it. So that's, that's one of the, the sort of the downfalls of of block practice because it 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 doesn't transfer to game IQ and it doesn't transfer to what's going to actually happen in the game. So it's the first step, but it's not the last step. Hundred uh, percent. Putting it into action, you know, there's there's one thing of learning the basic mechanics of doing anything, um, you know, pitching, you know, throwing a ball. There's, there's basic mechanics that we need to learn. Um, but once you're on the mound and you're trying to throw a strike on a, a batter that's crowding the plate uh, with, with the crowd cheering and, and uh, maybe it's, I was at a baseball game and when I was an athletic trainer and it's like April 2nd and it's snowing. <laughs> and so like people would hit the ball and then you're trying to pick it out from the snow, from the snowflakes that are falling like yeah. you're you're once you're in it and you have to react um and there's there's that um anticipation and and reaction that gets involved yeah everything changes and so you want to create practice scenarios that that um that embrace that you know from a strength training standpoint we we've kind of alluded it uh, alluded to it already 
the main concepts that we want to bring in uh, block practice, obviously we're, we're going to, we're going to use that a lot. Um, serial practice, definitely something to take advantage of because we can put component pieces together. Like I mentioned with a single leg bridge, single leg deadlift um, into us, into a swing. Um, you know, we're getting better uh, right, left hip activation, taking that into the single leg stance and making sure that again, things are when we, when we're upright and producing that force through the hips, we're more balanced out. Then we put it together into a symmetrical swing um, and, and uh, see an increase in, in efficiency in the swing power production. So serial practice is certainly something to, to take advantage of. Random practice is just a little harder to, to, to do. Um, I would rather think of that as interleaving and making sure we take advantage of this at, um, at the strong first uh, when we teach a certification uh, day one we're learning three skills we're going to learn the swing to get up in the clean well you're going to do a little swing do a little get up you're going to do a little swing you're going to do a little get up you're going to do a little clean you're going to do a little get up you're going to do a little swing and so we we bounce around in between these skills and i i see it happen every time we do it uh, you get to the end of day one and people are like, oh, 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 you know, their eyes are pinging around in their head and they're like, I don't know what we did today. And I'm like, wait for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You accomplished a lot more today than you think you did. Wait for tomorrow. And invariably they come back tomorrow. Swings are crisper. Cleans are looking good. Get up, sir. Get up, sir. Understood. So, um, you know, and we're, when we're looking for that training effect, you know, the, there's an old saying to press a lot. Yeah. You press a lot, um, meaning you, you got to do a lot of pressing. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons in, in strength training to to focus on that block serial and interleaving of the practice. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, another thing, if we're talking kind of kettlebells, right? Um, so block practice, you're learning how to do a swing. You know, a one-handed swing or a two-handed swing. Generally, most people start with a two-handed swing. But what would that look like um, with with serial practice? Well, let's say you've you've done the one-arm swing, but you've also learned the clean and the snatch. Well, now what you can do is, you know, the bottom at the bottom of the swing, um, the position in the shape should look very very similar, whether it's the bottom of the swing or the clean or the snatch. There are a, a couple differences, but for the most part, they should look very, very similar. So a great way to use serial practice is to grab a single kettlebell and go swing, then to a clean, then do a snatch, and then swing, clean, snatch. And then you can, again, you can change it up. You can do snatch, swing, clean, and you can, you know, figure out those varieties um, as much as you'd like. And, and, you know, if you do want to do random, you can do random. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily sure of what, you know, the, the point would be per se. I mean, I'm sure there, there are some things that you can do, um, to, to have a little bit of fun, uh, with the random training. Um, you know, you could be at the bottom of the swing and then you could call out what you want them to do next and they could do it sort of at the response. But again, that's, that's, that's really not the goal of, of, of sort of skill development and acquisition when it comes to kettlebells. Um, but um, it's just to, to demonstrate how you could potentially take these principles and use them in different ways. But, um, but it, it is, it's just a process and um, understanding that certain things and certain skills are going to lend themselves to certain styles of learning. And, you know, we've talked a ton about, again, the, the, the block practice and, and now the serial practice, again, like Brett said, is just simply, you know, sort of changing things in a slightly different order, but you're, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Now you can do a three, two, one, three, two, one, three, two, one, because it's the same, 
it's the same skill set in the same order. But then we get to the random practice. And this is where I think this is probably the most important thing when it comes to, you know, sports like uh, soccer, football, lacrosse, tennis, you name it. The random practice is probably the most important uh, piece of this once you acquire the skill. Whereas if you're in the world of strength training, the random practice is, is I would probably say, somewhat unnecessary. Sure, could you have a little bit of fun with it? But in my opinion, um, you don't need to do random strength training. Um, if you do, you could just get an app and you know, do the, any, any workout app that'll just throw a bunch of random things at you to kick your butt. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. And, um, you know, not to bash on CrossFit, but that's kind of a lot of their workouts are, they're just different. They're just different daily in there. Um, I don't think they were designed to be, uh, progressive and have a sort of a periodization scheme over it. It's just, it's fun. It's a workout of the day. And that's what it is. It's just simply, um, it's, it's a workout of the day. So, but the carryover to sport, this is where we need to really understand how to take someone from block practice and then potentially to serial practice. And then lastly, random practice. Um, because random practice is where the rubber meets the road. And if you want to be an accomplished athlete, um, you will have to get to the point where you've trained so much and you've put yourself in so many situations that when you're in a particular environment, you're not thinking, you're just reacting to what's happening. And that is one, that's when you know that you've, you've got some skill, but um, games are random. Sports are random. The environments are random. The field could be random. It could be a turf field to a grass field. That's going to behave very, very differently. So the more variability you have in your training, the more you're going to have, um, the more variability is going to create an environment where you can be more resilient with your own style of training and you can react and you're sort of, you've, you've already been there when you have the experience and you've been in different environments and you've been in different scenarios, you just have more experience to draw from. And that is where the biggest change is going to be made. It's, it's not just using that rebounder and over and over again, it's having the ability to run, to jump, to change direction, to pass at different angles at different uh, you know, different levels. And there's so many things that go into it. So at a certain point, we have to do the random practice. It just, that is the, that is where the rubber meets the road. And that is where we're going to have a fruitful practice session. Variability promotes adaptability mm -hmm. and, uh, our ability to adapt to a given situation, um, is, is key. Uh, our ability to respond, um, you know, that's, and it, you kind of start boring the lines into talking about some tactics, but uh, I think I mentioned this on a, a podcast not too long ago, like uh, somebody like Barry Sanders was not the fastest running back, but his, his ability to see the field, anticipate and not be there when the person tried to tackle them was unparalleled. You know, John Elway, um, his peripheral vision was such that, and it, I mean, this guy was almost like an owl. He could almost see behind him, <clears throat> but his his peripheral vision was so good. That, and they talked about, you know, in the pocket, he could feel the, de the, the defense closing in on him. He could see them. <laughs> and not that he was visually focusing on them, but that appearance in his peripheral vision, his brain had a response. It was like, 
run, you know, get, get out of here. Uh, so that ability to see the field, to respond, to anticipate, you know, those are things that if we put some variability and random uh, randomization into the practice, that's a skill that we can help develop uh, with within these kids. And, you know, you you don't want to be the the one trick pony that is only good if 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 conditions are right. Um, and I, I was going to say that, uh, you know, motor learning research um, is a robust field of study. Um, and you can, you can dig down that rabbit hole if you would, uh, if you would care to, um, it's, but it's, it's, it's learning some pretty high skill activities. And when, when we look at that and, and you start coaching, um, something like a high jump, you start coaching dance, you know, you're looking at the way dancers learn things and, and, uh, high skill integrated movement patterns, and and that that's where a lot of motor learning research is 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 focused, and um, that's you know from a strength training standpoint, a lot of things we're we're learning, pretty darn simple in the end, um, and uh, things that we should be able to coach people to learn uh, effectively. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's this whole entire process of learning is is. Um... It's as someone who is is actively coaching kids at this point, but also understands the science behind it. It's pretty fun to see because um, you can you can start to see um, you can it almost reveals the way that kids have been training as well because you can see the fluidity of some kids versus the the uh, you know the sort of um, when someone practices a skill with minimal athleticism, it doesn't look athletic. It just looks like a robot doing something, and then you can start to see this natural sort of uh, movement take over and it takes a little bit of time, right? Because, you know, any, anytime someone learns a new skill, they're not completely relaxed and, you know, they're taking a lot of things in. So that's, that's something to consider. But, you know, one other thing I want to, I want to sort of talk about is, well, let's say you understand all of this about how we learn. How do you structure things? Because, um, you could easily jeopardize all this stuff by poor planning with a practice. So let's say, right? You're working with a bunch of kids and you got a bunch of, you know, stuff you want to work on. You really want to work on, uh, whether it's their hand-eye coordination, I'll, I'll use lacrosse as an example. Again, you really want to work on just catching and passing and getting reps in. Um, it's, uh, it's important to structure when you're going to do that work. So if they come right in and all you do is run them into the ground for 30 minutes, how do you think they're going to do when it comes to the skill component? They're going to be tired. And guess what? If we're exhausted and we're mentally drained and, you know, we've depleted, we've depleted our entire body of, gly uh, of glycogen um, because we've run someone into the ground. Guess what? The brain runs off of glycogen. So it's kind of important to have a little extra in there. You think that you're going to acquire skill the same way or practice the same way? You're not. So look, when it comes to skill acquisition, skill acquisition is best when it's done first. First thing right away when you're fresh. Okay. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't practice when you're a little bit tired and replicate the environments, but when you are learning a brand new skill, you should not be tired. You should not be tired. You should be fresh and you want your repetitions to be clean. And your goal is to acquire or accrue as much repetitions as possible where you have optimal learning and minimal fatigue. And if you can attack things that way, that is the sweet spot because, um, 
you know, it's physiology, man. It's neurology. It's, it's how our bodies learn and function. Right. I mean, I can't stand when I hear like people that are like working with like 10 year olds and like, Oh, we're going to run them first. So they learn how to play tired. They don't even know how to play fresh. What makes you think they're going to be able to play tired? <laughs> they're going to play worse tired. No, seriously. It's the truth. I, it happens all the I time. I and it's it. just like, it, but this is the thing people have well, a lot of the times it's, well, this is what I did. This is what my coach did. Well, yeah, they didn't know anything about motor learning. They didn't, they just did what they did. And that was it. There was no science to back it up. Um, but I mean, it, it's kind of common sense, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things, right? I mean, if you worked a 12 hour day, would you want to try a new skill after working 12 hours? No, you know, that it's just better off going to bed and, and, and doing something the next day. So the way that we structure our skill acquisition and our skill practice from a environmental, from a physiological standpoint, and even from a neurology and energy system standpoint, all plays a role in your ability to acquire skill, but also recycle that skill day in and day out when you're playing the sport. And fatigue plays a role in that as well. So um, if you're learning to, if your goal is to acquire a new skill, don't, don't do it when you're tired, right? Do it when, uh, do it when you're fresh. And then it's a continuum. You learn the skill fresh, and then you'll start to practice and accrue those skills with a little bit of fatigue, but you're still sharp enough to pay attention. And then you'll get to the point where you can still be solid when you get tired. And that is, that's when it's reactive. That's when you don't even have to think, um, you know, and, and a big part of this is, uh, um, understanding motor learning in general. And, uh, you know, I think we'll probably finish up this with, with talking about kind of the four stages of motor learning. Um, and this is something that we all sort of do, whether, you understand how motor learning works or not, but, um, you know, there's different ways to look at motor learning, but we're going to quickly talk about these, uh, four stages. And, uh, usually it's, you know, demonstrated as a grid or a square. And, uh, the first one is, um, unconscious incompetence. That is, you don't know what you don't know. You know, if I were to go and I don't know, take up skydiving right now, I've never been skydiving and there's things about skydiving. I really don't even know about, but you know, that's what it is. It's basically having zero, uh, zero insight or knowledge about something. Um, and not even knowing that you have zero knowledge about something. That's the hard part because it's the unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. So that's kind of the first one. Anything you want to add to that, Brett, before we go into the other, other four, other three, rather. You just described me in a nutshell. <laughs> Help. I'm in a nutshell. Sorry. Um, but that is, um, that is a uh, unconscious incompetence. And now we come to the second one, which is conscious incompetence. It's now, you know, that you're not good at something. You are consciously aware that you do not have a specific skill. So you are incompetent and you know it, and there's nothing wrong with that because look, the first step to improve upon something is to know that you need to improve upon something. So that's the conscious part. So you start working, you start it's, learning. Oh, go ahead. Oh, it, it's it's one of the ones that everybody would love to skip because <laughs> yeah. no nobody likes being informed that they're not. Nobody likes being aware that they're not good at something. Um, and but unfortunately, that is such a key step. Awareness of what you're not good at is is so critical to actually learning something because you have to be aware that you lack this piece of the puzzle mm -hmm. and that awareness drives everything that's going to happen in the next two stages. Yep. And now we move on to sort of the other part of the, uh, of the grid. So let's say the sort of 
unconscious incompetence and a conscious incompetence is on the left. On the right is un, uh, sorry, conscious competence. Sorry, it's a it's it's a mouthful. Conscious competence is you understand something, but you have to work hard to continue to do it well. So you consciously have to work at it, right? You're like, oh man, I'm uh, I'm I'm okay at this, but I have to really really focus on this. All right, and that is just. Usually when you acquire a skill and you start to demonstrate that skill a little bit, you're like, yeah, I'm getting okay. I'm getting decent, but I've got work to do. Um, but you still have to try. It's not automatic, right? Um, and uh, that that is something that a lot of people live their life in. And and that's not a bad thing, right? Not they're, they're, Look, to get to the point where something is automatic, right? To, to do something where you don't even have to think it's you need hours and hours and hours of exposure and time. It just, in order to make that just to the point where you don't even have to think and react, it takes years. And, uh, you know, that is what the best in the world do is they don't think about what they're going to do in a, uh, a particular environment. They just react. They've been there. They've done it so many times. And that is what we call um, unconscious competence. That is where you can do something well and you don't even have to think about it. It's just, it's hardwired in. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, passing and catching with both hands in lacrosse. It's uh, in jujitsu, getting to the point where you're, you know, a brown belt or a black belt where, you know, someone does something and you just react. You don't have to be like, what do I do? You've already seen every iteration of that. So it's like, you are already at that point where things become automatic. And, and usually that's the point where you start to work towards mastery. Yeah, it's, and uh, that, that, that second part of the, the puzzle that everybody would love to skip is like I said, it's what sets you up for the next two stages. And mm -hmm. so that awareness drives a lot of things. Um, and you know, the, that goal of, uh, unconscious competence, um, the, the meme, uh, and, and saying that, uh, that, um, uh, gels with that is, um, you know, and uh, what is it? Amateurs, uh, practice till they get it right uh professionals practice till they can't get it wrong yep um and that that's that's kind of the difference between those two stages as well when when you're conscious competence you've practiced so that you can do it right when you're unconscious competence you've practiced so that it's actually difficult to do it wrong um and so um that that journey it's a journey and what i wanted to kind of circle back on real quick was this this concept of struggle um Struggle doesn't mean you're not having fun. And struggle doesn't mean that you're working yourself in, into a, uh, into a puddle because to your point, the, the, the learning, uh, the quality learning that you're looking for, um, is done fresh and it's as you fatigue initially. And, and again, we're talking about skill acquisition as you start to fatigue, you are altering the pattern that you are trying to learn. So you're not learning the same thing if you allow uh, fatigue to set in and you allow yourself to slow down and create these alternate patterns. Once you've learned the skill and now you want to battle test it uh, via some fatigue and make sure you can still do it right, that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. Keep those two things separate. You, you need that period of skill acquisition to where you can do it right before you start, uh, because there's, there's a concept of movement variability that, uh, and golf, uh, is a great example. Um, you know, only, 
uh, I forget forget the statistics, but uh, professionals do not hit the fairway every time they drive the ball. Uh, it's it's maybe 25, 30% of the time they're missing the fairway. And um, that's a lot of missed shots. <laughs> and so they're trying to do the same thing every time they step up there. Uh, but there is a degree of movement variability that is just natural. Um, and so we we need eventually we we play with that and, we, and with that movement variability. But that initial skill acquisition phase, stay fresh, uh, have fun, but struggle. And um, just like you said, with the kids learning how to backpedal, just set up the guardrails, make sure they know how to, you know, make sure they know how to fall and uh, let them learn. Get out of the way. Yeah. And, and, and look, it, they're going to fall like like and, and that that's, a, you know, the other thing is, is, uh, you know, you can't protect them like you can't protect your kids from the fall. You can't protect your kids from the struggle because if you try to shelter them from anything that's hard, they're never going to get anywhere. And and when they do get challenged later in life, they're not going to have those previous experiences to pull from. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's all about how we learn and how you apply it. So if you're a, uh, if you're a strength and conditioning coach, you know, there's some, some definitely some good things to, to take from this. If you are a, a sport coach, I think this is where most sport coaches get it wrong. They don't understand that this is a process um, and it takes time to to do things correctly and to, to be fruitful with these things. Because a lot of the times, like you said, it's, you know, some of that random practice, you don't get immediate good quality feedback. Sometimes it, it, it takes a little bit longer. Whereas it's like, if you shoot the basketball and it goes in, you get immediate feedback that you did it right. So it's just about, um, you know, how you're looking to do things and how far you want to take skill acquisition. But um, you do want to get to that point, hopefully, whether it's something, uh, whether it's your job or whether it's something that you enjoy, right? You want to keep on learning, keep on learning, keep on learning. Will you master it? Maybe, maybe not. But um, it's pretty cool when you get to the point where, you know, you can teach a, a kettlebell swing to pretty much anybody in 15 minutes, or um, you can teach a get up or a pull up. I mean, those are the things that look, it just takes time and experience and exposure. Um, and and that's, that's where you get it from. So, um, Brett, one, one one last one last thing on uh, on overcoaching because I, I think one of the things that that kicks in and, and as a person who used to golf, um, you f- you can easily fall into the trap in a round of where you're trying to fix something every time you're swinging the club. Well, the last one went left, so I don't want to go left again, so I block it right. Well, that one blocked right, so I don't want that to happen again. So now I I dribble it off the tee, and uh, you know top it and and have a bad really bad result. And so I don't want to do that again. So then I dig too deep and I, I hit behind the ball. Like you can very easily in skill acquisition fall into the trap of trying to fix every rep or every time you're doing something. You got to be okay with the struggle and quote failing in learning something. It's okay. And you don't need to coach every rep. You, you pick a thing that you would like somebody to do better at. And let's, let's give them a little work on that one thing and, uh, and build from there. So struggle, fun, fresh, use some of these concepts in putting your, uh, practice together. Absolutely. And, uh, well, folks, that's it for today. Brett, thank you for your insight as always. It's lots of fun. And to our listeners, thank you so much. We truly appreciate your support. 
Um, if you could do us a huge favor, please give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to. And we'll see you all in the next episode. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.